Aotearoa is a nation of voyages, but since the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, Māori have had no direct influence over who and what comes over our borders. But in 1996 that changed, albeit briefly. The Honourable Tuariki Delamere entered Parliament as a Minister for New Zealand First and became responsible for crucial portfolios like customs, immigration and associate finance. After just three years he was gone, but in his short time he made a lasting impact. Kia ora, I'm Morgan Godfrey. I'm a blogger, writer and commentator and I'm fascinated by New Zealand politics. Now, I'm speaking with former Māori MPs in Mātangirea, Parliament's historic Māori Affairs Committee room. I want to understand their place in our history and what we can learn from their political legacies. This is Mātangirea. Tuariki Delamere served just three years in Parliament from 1996 to 1999. He was elected as the MP for Titaidafiti. Delamere's ministerial positions included customs, immigration, Pacific Island affairs, as well as Associate Minister of Finance and Associate Minister of Health. Takuhapu I hear you're a world record holder. Can you tell me about that? Well, a world record holder of sorts in 1974. I was a pretty good long jumper, but at the Pacific Championships in Los Angeles in the Coliseum, without anyone knowing about it, except my immediate coach, I opened up with a somersault long jump. That's still the world record because they banned it a few months later, so no one can break it. Is that what took you to the US as well? Because you left Tauranga Boys College and you went mm. to the United States. Is that what took you there, the athletics? Yeah, it was. I just started Auckland University. I'd been admitted to the medical school there and then I got all these scholarship offers because I was able to jump a fair distance. And so I chose one of them, went and saw the dean and asked him what he thought. And he says, well, if it'd been me, I would have gone last week. <laughs> so off I went. What were the people in the US like there when you arrived? Were they like, who is this Maori boy? Well, so much that when I arrived at the university, it was quite incredible because back then it was the spring riots um, from 1970 um, from Vietnam and half the buildings at my university were surrounded by barbed wire, um, soldiers patrolling the grounds and there were kill students killed at Kent State and um, yeah, so it was very interesting for someone coming from New Zealand where never seen rifles and all the cops are killing, carrying guns. Mm-hmm. Was it terrifying? No, no, I was great, loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you got any sort of special attention, I'll put that in quote marks at school, because you were a Māori boy? Well, I did get special attention. I was the first third former 1965 on day two to get the bloody cane. 
hurt too, but never mind. School was great. I mean, in 1967, I was the top Māori student in New Zealand for school certificate, and I was awarded the Hwani Waititi Award. And what's sad is, at that time, my father never said anything. Two years later, in the seventh form, or year 13 now, I came top and was awarded the Te Moana Nuiakiwa Ngārimu Scholarship. And again, my old man never said anything, but I never knew that Ngārimu is actually a Delamere. He's what we call a by God Sama, descended from the original um, by God Sama. His mother, uh, Mariah, she came from Mamaio. But these things, now we know all about it, and our kids are taught, our mokos are taught, and it's such a rich history. And it just really grates me that, that we missed out on all that. But hey, um, it's never too late. And the mokos today, my goal is to make sure they know who they are and where they come from. Mm. Why do you think your father didn't say anything? Oh, that's just the old man. Um, but again, he was pretty typical of that generation. Um, they had been told that the only way to get forward in this life was to focus on English and the Parker culture. We know that's wrong. And so things have changed. And, you know, I think we owe so much to those um, you know, Tamato of the 70s. That's my lot. But I was in the USA, so I can't claim any credit for it. But when you see what those guys did back then and the benefits, they're all absolutely terrible radicals. Well, they weren't that radical by... But because of them, we are where we are today. Mm, mm, mm. I'm really jealous of you because, one, you're an athlete, but you're also a scholar. And you got no, I'm the current Asia Shop World Champion for my age <laughs> Don't rub it in, don't rub it in. <laughs> you went to the US and you got an MBA and you mm. also worked at the West Point Military Academy. Mm. That's the most prestigious mm. military academy in the yeah. world. How did you end up there? Well, they had a thing called the draft back then and I had a green card, so I was a permanent resident. And if you're a permanent resident, you're eligible for the draft. Anyway, a mate of mine was um, a US gold medalist in the 68 Olympics and he said, my numbers came up, he orchestrated it for me to go to West Point. So technically I was an accounting specialist. So, and I did that during the day, but the real reason I was there, they wanted someone to coach the jumpers. And the academy's just amazing. United States Military Academy, it's you know, the school of MacArthur, General Patton, Eisenhower, and just an incredible institution. And yes. I was lucky and fortunate to be able to be there for a few years. What was it then that brought you back to the country? Because you came back to the country in the late 70s, was it? Yeah, because my home record um, was New Zealand. And the policy in the, in the US, when you finish your term, if you don't stay on, that they'll ship you back to your home record. And my home record was listed as New Zealand, so they just shoved everything into a star lifter, flew it down to Christchurch and came back lock, stock and barrel. The plan was to probably spend a couple of years down here, but at the end of the day, we decided to stay. And yeah, New Zealand's a better place to raise the kids as far as I'm concerned, and certainly these days. How did you feel coming back? Um, yeah, it was a bit different. Um, I ended up in Kawaro, um, working at Tasman Pulp and Paper, timber, timber Division Accountant, took over from my cousin, Monita, and yeah, just, did those things, though I spent three years after that, I got the position as Chief Finance Officer for Polynesian Airlines when ANSET took over their airline. They sent me up there, so I was there for three years. I was the country manager um, for a major US computer firm, a mainframe firm, 
um, concurrent computers. But one day in 1990, I decided I didn't want to sell computers anymore, and I ended up getting the position as manager of treaty negotiations for the Treaty Waitangi Policy Unit, now known as OTS, Office of Treaty Settlements. In 1996, New Zealand First was preparing to contest the first MMP election, standing a candidate in each of the five Māori seats. Tuariki was approached to stand in Te Tairawhiti. When Winston rang you, did he ring you out of the blue or did you already have a relationship with him? Well, I had a relationship, but you know, nothing that close. I didn't belong to New Zealand First or anything like that. I'd been impressed with him. I agreed with some of the positions he was taking when he had been with National. So at that time, TPK, Wurra Gardner, was looking for a regional director um, for the Whakatane office. So I decided, well, if I have any chance of getting the nomination for New Zealand first, I need to go home. So I put in for the job. And so you got the perfect job. Your regional director, Puni Kōkere. My electorate is, um, if I pull it off, is Wairiki, which um, covers Ngāti Porau, Mātātua, and Te Arawa. And my job is to go around from marae to marae doing whatever. So there I am, campaigning, building up a base. And it duly came to pass. New Zealand first won all five Māori seats. Tuariki was joined by Tutikawa Wiley, Tukuroirangi Morgan, Tauhenare, and Rana Waitai. So did you know at that time that you were going to get in in 1996? Or were you surprised um, when it actually happened? We were like, no, the, we made it happen. Yeah, I mean, you're never totally convinced, but I was pretty sure we were going to win all of them. Um, you just read the mood. I mean, they didn't vote for me, okay? They didn't vote for Toe or the others. They voted for Winston. But the only way to vote for Winston was to tick our names. And, yeah, I mean, Winston did an incredible job getting... You know, basically blue rents old park here into the same waka as Māori. But unfortunately, once we got there, he didn't carry through it and sort of put us at different ends of the waka and you, Māori, keep your head down. And, of course, with us five, we were never going to shut our mouths up and, yeah, it got a bit testy at times, to say the least. How did he marginalise the Māori MPs? It was just... You know, um, I'll give you a good example. Um, when Jim Bolger resigned from Parliament after he got rolled by Shipley, the Māori MPs, the five of us, were told we weren't allowed to go anywhere near the king country and get involved in the election campaign. You know, it's that sort of thing. Mm. Just keep your heads down. Don't say things that will upset um, Winston's basic voting bloc. Mm. And that was sad because I think if Winston had had the you know, perhaps the courage to move forward on that. Um, New Zealand First could have been a lot bigger and better. And New Zealand First might have actually developed to an actual party of a party. The reality is right now, it's still Winston. And that's their problem. I mean, look, you can't knock Winston. For God's sake, he's been there for 40, over 40 years now. Um, but there is no party beyond Winston that I can see. And so it's going to be very difficult if and when he ever retires. Not sure he'll ever retire, you know. I think Winston plans on living to 120 and he'll still be here in 50 years' time. <laughs> I just want to take you back to a little <clears throat> bit before that to 1996 when you first came in. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you first got to Parliament? Well, it was fascinating. I mean, wow, here I am in Parliament. I mean, but Peter Tapsell, about 
10 o'clock on Saturday night, came to Wahio to concede, and that was a pretty moving experience, you know, within the Iwi Hapu of Tiarawa, that process there, and that was very moving. Next morning, I was flying up to Auckland to speak on the Karere, I think it was, with some others, and flew back to Whakatane. When I landed at Whakatane about four in the afternoon, um, um, Auntie Mary, the uh, Wahine Tuturu Tamonita, was waiting for me to drive me back to the coast. And when I arrived, they arrived back at Fitianga, Haumarae at Fitianga, um, there were probably two, three hundred of the Delamere Fano there waiting. And that was pretty awesome, special, you know, to come through the main gates, yeah. um, you know, to re- honour what had happened the night before. But then, uh, next morning, flying down to Wellington, I have lunch with Winston. And Winston and I were in the outside 3.2, the, um, you know, the um, MP's dining room. And we're standing out there, it's just him and me, the door's open, and this Pākehā father gets out. That bloody woman, that FBBB woman, it was Mike Moore, expressing his um, feelings about Helen. <laughs> They weren't exactly the best of friends in those days. You know, Mike still resented that Helen had rolled him a few years earlier. And he ignored me, he didn't know who I was. He was just venting at, at Winston and Winston's trying not trying to be sympathetic and not burst out laughing. And yeah, Mike was you know, he was a very huge personality of Mike. And um, but that difference um, between and that bitterness between him and Helen from my observation during the negotiations, is probably what killed the chance of us having a coalition with, with Labour. After the election, New Zealand first held the balance of power. The government wouldn't be decided by the voters, but by Winston Peters. When we started, Labour was the dead favourite, you know, dead cert favourite, and I was on the negotiation team, and the Nats, pretty well all opposed except the old fellows like Bolger and Birch and those who'd been in opposition before. You know, Bolger was always in opposition. You'd never want to be in opposition, not for anything. And so that was their position, but we were still leaning towards Labour most of the time. But the first meeting we had with Labour, the air was so thick, you know, it was this, you could feel this bitterness between Helen and Mike. And while it eased off over a few weeks, it had a lasting impression on most of us. And, but even right up to about the last minute, 10th of December, 9th of December, whenever it was, the, the party were, was leaning generally towards Labour. Winston, I knew, wanted to go with National. I'd had a private meeting with him. He asked me to come to a meeting at Tommy Gear's place in about August, and he wanted to... You know, he was strongly in favour of going with the Nats. But as he said, in the day, we'll just have to wait and see what, how the dice roll out. And when they came out, he still felt the best way to go was with Nats. And I actually agreed with him. But I also knew that as a Māori MP, if we signed up with Nats, I was going to be a one-termer. But that's how it played out. And the 12th of December, when we signed with National, I knew I was a one-term MP. I knew Māori, Māori them would punish us, and, and they did in three years' time. Did you tell Winston that at the time? No, I mean, Winston wouldn't have cared anyway, but, you know, I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, 
it came through. Um, National made incredible offers. You know, they gave away the bank pretty much. At least that's what it looked like to us. Now, what did Labor offer? Well, they didn't offer anything. At least that's what we were told by Wayne. In the day, the negotiations were handled by Wayne, Wayne Peters, Winston's brother. And presuming, you know, Wayne was telling us, you know, the gospel truth, uh, it was an easy decision. You know, I mean, it was incredible. You had, what, 17 MPs? And we had um, nine ministers. You know, and only four, four of us had been in Parliament before. And five were in Cabinet. So we knew a brand new person would be in Cabinet. And I was fortunate and lucky enough to be that person. Did you feel chucked in the deep end? First term MP, Minister of Immigration? Like no, no um, I was at Mr Customs at the time and Associate Treasurer. Well, people talk about, oh, it must have been so difficult. Look, it's a lot more difficult um, trying to run an airline that's losing a couple million dollars a year because that was the situation with Polynesian back then. Um, you know, they give you all the staff. I mean, being a minister, being an MP is not that difficult. Um, you're well supported. It's a long hours and every MP I knew was doing their best. It was all the same with us. And so being a minister, yeah, wow. You know, here I am, um, a few months ago, I was just Joe Blow walking the streets of Whakatane and up in the hills of the Uruwetas and etc. And now I'm a cabinet minister. Now, normally the situation is prime minister is at the top of the beehive, then number two, three and four and so on. And because I was ranked on about 17th, I should have been down on the third or fourth floor. But Winston insisted that I had an office next to him, so I was on the seventh floor. My uncle Spady, Petey Delamere, and my auntie Emma Rogers brought them down, and the late Whadakaihua Coates. And we had a Ringatu ceremony, started about 4 a.m. in the morning. And then after prayers about 6 a.m., as Parker staff started arriving, you got all these Māoris chanting away doing their Ringatu Waiata. And then we went round and sprinkled the holy water to, to cleanse the area, and then finally did my office. And after that, we, we, we tied to um, one of the conference rooms where we had a breakfast put on. And during breakfast, the elders approached me. They wanted me to take a Māori name, because back then I was just John Edward Delamere. And they says, you're the first from the coast to ever be a cabinet minister, you know, from our iwi, etc., etc. We'd like you to consider taking your father's name. Well, if you've ever met some of my aunties, I'm not going to argue with that lot. <laughs> and it so, it so happened. We had, a, if you like, a, a ring or two baptism ceremony in the first week of January where I took my father's name, Tōrigi. And so I still retain that from my time in Parliament. And at that ceremony, Auntie Maka gifted me this taonga that came down from um, great-grandfather Takuhi, I believe. And so, yeah, that was pretty incredible. Yeah, that's a huge honour but I wonder if you got any backlash or pushback for it. Oh, I got a little bit. In fact, the most memorable part was, um, you know, I got attacked in the house by Jonathan Hunt for having the audacity to take the name Tōriki because their literal translation is like, you know, the bee's knees, you know, the high chief of, of all high chiefs sort of thing. And, yeah, that was disappointing that Jonathan decided to, you know, play politics and it basically not attack me. He was attacking Te Whānau Apanui, mm. uh, Ngāti Wāhia, Tūhūranga, Whakatōhia and the elders. 
I wonder whether there was that basic disrespect for Whakapapa and for Māori across the house. Well, back the then there, there, there was totally. And from memory, I think I was the first of the new MPs to um, do the maiden speech because I was the only cabinet minister. Because I had a big support group down there and, and the rules of the house is um, when you're up in the public gallery, you sit there, keep your mouth shut, don't say anything, don't make any actions or they kick you out. So, um, and I knew what my lot were going to do. I'm not going to shut them up. So I went and saw the speaker, um, Doug Kidd, and says, Doug, you know, when I finish my speech, all that lot up there, they're going to stand up and do a waiata, probably a partorio. What do you think? Oh, I'll just look up there and see all your brown rallies up there and I'll sit back and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now accepted part of the um, Kaupapa Parliament now. So that's great. Mm. One thing I'm interested to know your position on is you were Minister of Customs, you were mm -hmm. Minister of Immigration, the first Māori Minister, I think, of Immigration ever, and the first Māori person to ever control the borders since the Treaty of Waitangi. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, now you put it that way, I never thought of it like that. Um, my main role there as Minister was to support Customs and um, make sure we protect our borders, especially with drugs and, and smuggled goods. Um, immigration was a bit different. That was a fascinating, actually my, my favorite um, portfolio, because you're actually dealing with the lives of real people. And some people remember that for a whole year, I was roundly attacked by the media because I was trying to kick out um, Gunther Scheer, who was a German. He came into New Zealand in 1990, lied to get in here. He had just been released from about three years of jail for trafficking narcotics in Germany. And he and his um, later-be wife came to New Zealand. And I was the fifth minister to um, try to get rid of him. And because, you know, we have a legal system that if you've got plenty of money, you can go back and forwards to the high court and delay things forever. And he'd managed to delay it for 10 years. I finally got rid of him but I was attacked for doing it. And I remember um, I was driving with my driver coming through the hills there outside Rotorua, and I was being attacked by uh, a radio um, announcer for kicking out a good white person. Mm. And I'd been, I was too chicken to uh, talk to him on the radio. So I told my driver, yeah, find a clearing where we've got a signal, bro. <laughs> I called the radio station. And they put me through. I said, oh, I just listened to you. He says, why are you, why are you lying to the, to the country that I'm too chicken to talk to you? You've never tried to get hold of me. But I'm here now. And, and I asked him, he says, you know, a month ago you praised me for, for kicking out 20 Tongans. Okay? These 20 Tongans were here illegally. They were working in the same area, um, just as Mr. Shear was. He says, the only, there's only two differences I can work out. The Tongans are brown, Mr. Shear is white. The Tongans don't have a criminal record, Mr. Shear does. Are you calling me a racist? No, I'm just telling you the facts of life, bro. You know, I mean, it's no fear, no favor. The Tongans should have been kicked out, and so should Mr. F Mr. Shear. But, you know, those are fun things, you know. You just, you take your position and you don't back off on it. Mm -hmm. Would you call it racist now? The department, yeah, look, there's a... Immigration New Zealand, I think, have some major issues. Um, they have a massive turnover, like incredible turnovers, like half their staff turnover every year. So 
The staff there are very untrained. Uh, I'm one of their hardest critics, and I've been told off by the highest levels in the department. That's not being fair, but you know, six weeks ago we had a, a meeting, and a manager, a senior manager from Wellington, admitted that so far this year, Immigration New Zealand, I think, have lost 54% of appeals to the Immigration Tribunal. Can you imagine if our criminal courts got it wrong 54% of the time? The country would be in an outrage. Yet, Immigration New Zealand do that. When I became Minister of Immigration, the statistic that I was just astonished was that we lost 38%. Well, it's now gone to 54. There's something wrong in the system. And, you know, the minister needs to fix it. It's not the easiest thing in the world, of course, because it's very political immigration. You fixed it in a very, really interesting sense because you were well ahead of your times. You gave gay and lesbian couples equal rights when they yeah. were applying for permanent <laughs> residency. Can you walk me through that? Well, if you were in a same-sex relationship, you had to prove you'd been in a relationship for four years. Um, back then, if you were in a hetero relationship, only two years. So I said, right, change it. It's going two years for, for, for homosexuals as well as hetero. Oh, you can't do that, Minister. Oh, okay. Then put hetero up to four. What do you mean? They're both going to be the same, bro. We're not going to discriminate on, um, you know, on sexual preference or whatever. Yeah, those sort of things. You, you actually got to make a difference. It annoyed me that there was such discrimination in there. We had a language bond which put in, of $20,000, which is really put in place to make it more difficult for Chinese. And I wasn't going to have that either. We've crapped on Chinese ever since the mid-1800s. We had a special law passed to try and charge them like a year's salary to get a bloody visa about 100 years ago. And so I just want things, we're all the same on this planet. And, you know, so, yeah, that was great to be able to influence those sort of things. You once made a major power play over Kapahaka. Can you tell us about that? First time I annoyed Winston a bit because he was the treasurer. And I was standing on stage down there at Tōrere at our Mātātua Kapahaka there in 97. And I was thinking about it and I was talking to some of the, the big bosses from Matatini and um, so how much funding do you get from the government? Oh, zero. Oh, that's crazy. I know we're giving zillions to the ballet, zillions to the orchestra. So I, I guess big noting myself, I'm on the stage introduced and asked me to give a speech and says, look, this is amazing, you know, we do this. This is the biggest cultural event in the country. And I've just discovered that we get zero funding um, from the government. I'm going to get funding. So I go back, I'm associate treasurer, budget discussions, and I'm told by Bill Birch, no, because he's my senior. Um, Doug Graham says, oh, that's not real culture. Real culture is the ballet and the orchestra. Well, you know, stuff you, um, Doug. Um, I'm going to refuse to support the budget. Well, that's an interesting thing. I'm associate treasurer. <laughs> you, know, I'm, you don't do that. Anyway, Bolger found out and called me up to his office. What's this all about? And I explained to him. He said, what do you think they should get? Well, Jim, the ballet get like five million, the orchestra gets 10 million or whatever it was, those numbers. The very least, we should get at least a million. Yeah, I agree. I'll make sure it happens. And Bolger was brilliant like that. He was very pragmatic. Um, and that's where they got their funding. The real disappointing thing is, I understand 20 years later, that's still all they get. 
So, you know, to my successors of me and Toe and the rest, hey, you guys, you've got nine Māori ministers, I think it is, and four other brownies. Have a look at um, the funding for our, of, of our culture compared to um, ballet and the orchestra. So I tell you what, ain't too many tourists come to this country to look at our ballet and look at our orchestra. Ain't too many Kiwis out there paying money to go see it. Um, but Kapahaka, the two biggest cultural events in this country, uh, Matatini and Polyfest. Yeah. And you look at all the kids today, this is what I just love it, eh? Māori, Pākehā, Chinese, Indians, you go to school, all these kids full into um, kapahaka, so it's great. As part of the Type 5, you were often portrayed in the media yeah. with the Sharkies glasses on. Tuku Morgan was obviously pursued by the media as well for various controversies that happened mm -hmm. in the Aotearoa television network. Yeah. But did you often feel that the coverage was racist? Oh, it was very racist, obviously. But first, you know, with the Ray-Bans, go back and look at all the photos. you never find one with me there. Never owned a Ray-Ban, never worn one. But yeah, the other four, um, they had Ray-Bans. I couldn't afford them, you see. Um, Tuku, that whole thing with his underpants, that was just racism like you wouldn't believe. The reason for that is Tuku earned his money for delivering a contract to the government. Okay? Once you deliver the service, you get paid. How the company, Aotearoa Television, chose to divide up that contract money that had been legally, ethically, morally earned is none of the government's business. Because if it is, I tell all those um, Parker media that were railing on about it, then you should be attacking every school teacher, every civil servant, because I don't recall them being required to go to their minister to ask, have we got your permission to, to buy groceries with this money, minister? The money belonged to that company. Tuku, I believe, was the majority owner and the boss. Now, why anyone would spend $80 to wrap up the crown jewels of Taino is be, you know, beside the point. But he chose to do so. But the whole thing was a beat-up. It really was. Did the Type 5 have a policy agenda? No. Other than that, we wanted to do what we thought was best for Māori, individually and collectively. But, you know, there was never any of this backbiting in the competition like we found with many of our Pākehā colleagues. I mean, I was told once, oh, that's Helen Clark, she's your enemy. No, she's my, Helen's my opponent. The enemies are the ones who sit beside you and behind you because you can't advance in Parliament by killing the opposition. You can only advance in Parliament by killing one of your own. But we never had that within the five Māori members. And, but it is still funny, the name Tight Five. We were the pretty loosest Tight Five you've ever seen. <laughs> But in 1997, Jenny Shipley rolled Prime Minister Jim Bolger, shattering the relationship between National and New Zealand First. Jenny Shipley called you, she appointed you Minister of Immigration. Mm. What was your relationship like with her? Jenny, pretty good. I mean, Jenny's a very social person. For example, Helen's not. I mean, I didn't have a lot to do with Helen, but tell you what, I've got incredible respect um, for Helen, I mean, especially as her role as Prime Minister, being able to hold their lot together for nine years. But we had a very good professional relationship. Over Gunther Shear, for example, she came to see me, told me I'd made the right decisions, and she was very supportive of it. 
on the smoking legislation. She knew I had written it. She came to tell me, look, it's not through, don't worry, I'll make sure it gets through. And she did. She made it even harder you know, on smokers. And so, yeah. But with, with Jenny, yeah, a couple of issues that I was disappointed with. Two days before the election in 1999, um, she had been approached by Immigration New Zealand. They were annoyed with me because I'd granted residency to 22 people, um, half from mainland China, half from Taiwan, that were supporting um, projects, two Māori projects. One was up north that had been put together by Shane Shane Jones. The other one had been put together in the Hawke's Bay by Wehuata and others. And I mulled over it. And back then the policy said if you had a million dollars, basically you could get a residency. Well, they had 15 million, I think it was. So it wasn't enough for all 22. But as minister, um, I could circumvent that and grant, you could grant residency or a visa to anybody you wanted. So I finally did that because Māori could never get bank loans. And here's a bunch of Chinese willing to put out 15 million. And so I approved it eventually. And Jenny wants me to undo it all. I refused. I'm sorry, Prime Minister, but I think, one, it's a very good idea. This is why, this is why. And she says, well, I want it done, done. Well, I'm not going to do it. But if you want, I'll resign as immigration minister. She says, you'll get back to me. She never did get back to me. About two hours later, Paul Holmes got back to me. He says, hey, bro, you've been fired. What do you think? Oh, whatever. Um, anyway, I went that night on the home show and, you know, I was the front page of all the newspapers the day out from the election. And um, in due course, two days later, I lost my seat. National were out of government and I had the best kickstart marketing campaign ever because the Chinese community thought I was a martyr. <laughs> so that played well into my new career as an immigration advisor. But it was pretty disappointing that Jenny Shipley did that because she was playing the Māori card as far as I was mm, concerned. Mm. Did you have a feeling that she was going to sack you? No, did not you at all. Did you back your mind? Not at all. I mean, we had a conversation and I told her, look, I'll resign, but I'm not going to back down because decision that I made, one, was totally legal. I was allowed to do it and it would have been good for New Zealand. And subsequent events have proven that what I was trying to do was good for New Zealand. We now have regional incentives to try and bring migrants investment money there. But I don't think she really cared about that. She was trying to save her position as the Prime Minister. And maybe if she whacks an upstart cheeky Māori around, that might get a few more votes. Now, Jenny probably did say that wasn't how it was at all, but that's how I saw it. With New Zealand first, when the, the Type 5 mm -hmm. stayed with the National Party and Winston left, he mm -hmm. left with Bolger. But you didn't go into Modi Pacific with Toe and the other yeah. New Zealand first MPs. You started your own party. What was the co-popper of that? Yeah, the split with Winston um, wasn't split from Bolger. Bolger got rolled by Jenny. Uh, Winston was apoplectic over that because he had a good relationship with Jim. Um, he had a rather poisonous relationship with Jenny and yeah, it festered away and finally blew apart. And while I understand you know, how Winston felt, I think the way he did it was wrong and I ended up quitting the party over the Wellington Airport. Um, and I was out of my own, what to do? So. Um, overnight I became an independent and then I talked to my elders back home, um, led by the late Te Whare Kaihua Coates 
And Willie says, ah, don't be independent, go and register Tafara. You know, and the, sort of in memory of the Kōti Rikirangi o Tahai Ringatū, and that's how that came about. So um, for a year and a half, the Tafara Tahai Ringatū was in, the, was in Parliament, I guess. But I was surprised, and that was me. But two, two or three days later, Tō took out another six or seven, and I think five of them formed Māori Pacific. And they asked me to join. I said, nah, you know, I'm going, I came in this way, I'll go out that way. And I would have been very pleased if they had won and got in, but chances were, like with me, you know, not too good. Was it a lonely time for you? No, not at all. Um, it was a great time, me and Tō and Tuku and Tutikarana. You know, in some ways it was freed up because our caucuses were at times quite poisonous affairs over Māori issues. So once we split, we didn't have that problem. And we continued, both Toe and I were fortunate enough to be kept as ministers by Jenny Shipley. And we just put our heads down and we got a year and a half, we did the best job we could. Did you want to serve another term? I know you said that as soon as um, you went with National, you knew it was one term, but did you oh, want to serve that second? Well, I mean, yeah. If I'd been selected, sure, I would have been there, but and I was approached by both national interests representing national and labour, asking you know um, to join them, and they'd put me in the list. I would almost certainly get back in again, but I said, look, and I appreciated it. Okay, there was no animosity. I just said, look, I've come in this way. Uh, I just don't think I should do it that way. Do you have any regrets from your time in Parliament? Only one, and while I made that decision, I don't think I handled it very well when I quit the party. It was a Friday in Whakatane. I was going to be interviewed by Sean Plunkett at seven. He was going to interview me about something. I told his producer, nah, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this. He says, oh no, Mr Plunkett wants to talk about that. Well, I don't care what Sean wants to talk about. If he doesn't want to talk about what I want to talk about, then we'll talk to somebody else. Anyway, Sean came on, that's okay. And anyway, that was about quarter past seven on the Friday morning, I think it was. And anyway, um, two hours later, every TV truck within 200 miles was rolling into Whakatane trying to find me. At that time, I was up at a Tohunga's place um, doing Ringatū stuff. Um, but in reflection, while I disagreed with what Winston had done, yeah, um, perhaps I should have handled it differently. So yeah, there is a degree of regret there in that sense. What's your proudest achievement looking back? Looking back is that I stood my ground. If I believed in something, come hell or high water, I did it and refused to back down on things like that. So, um, and so that's what I consider, I guess, my main achievement, just that's what I thought was right, and that's what I did. You've been listening to Mātangi Deo with Morgan Godfrey. This podcast was made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. Music by Audio Network. Sound recording by Craig Mullis. Audio design by Reed Audio Limited. Edited by Chris Anderton. Mātangi Deo was commissioned by Kay Elmers for RNZ. Shannon Honui Thompson is the Kurahotu Māori. Executive producer, Carmen J. Leonard. Mātangi Reo was produced and directed by Annabel Lee Mather 
and Mihinarangi Forbes. <laughs> <laughs>